I'm Malcolm Love. I'm still Malcolm Love. And I'm joined by Hannah Bestwick for, as we said, an hour of uh, science chat and uh, science behind the news. I hope you are well and uh, that you've had a, a good week. How are, you, how are you, Hannah? Yeah, I'm doing okay. As ever, nothing very much to say about what's been going on in my life. <laughs> you I talk must, yourself down I must sound here. so boring. Every week I'm just like, Certainly no, not. nothing. Certainly not. You're nothing the, the, opposite, the opposite of boring. But I do notice I didn't recognise you today. Yes. Yeah, yeah I've, um, I've cut all my hair off. Yeah. Not all well, of it, not, I've got a little bit left. Not all of it, but it's a, t- oh, yeah, it's so a drastic the, change. Yeah. Well, there you go. You're looking great. Thank you very much. What? Where have you been recently? I've been, well, I've been, um, as one is... I was I was in South Korea. Wow. Yeah. So um, I, I I just went to South. I thought, where shall I go? This, the, you know, <laughs> I, I was a bit different. No, um, you had I, a reason. I, I, I had some work to do in uh, South Korea, so um, I, I was there for four days. Um, so the jet lag is quite considerable because yeah. it's a thirteen-hour. Well, I, I think something like a 12-hour flight out, something like that, um, just a tad under 13 hours back. And um, it's nine hours ahead of us. So you really notice that. I mean, yeah. you know, um, if it's an hour difference, a couple of hours is, you know, you start to fit nine hours and your body starts to complain. That's amazing. Uh, especially for a four four-day turnaround, you know. What was it like being there at the moment? Oh, very exciting because... Um, uh, as you saw, it must have seen on the news. Yeah. Uh, everybody was talking about the, you know, this amazing meeting between Kim and from the North and and uh, yeah. Moon President uh, Moon. Well, that's his first name. I can't recall his second name for a moment. Uh, and uh, they, they held hands and they walked over the uh, what's known as the DMZ mm-hmm. or the uh, de- uh, 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 the demilitarized zone, uh, and they they walked backwards and forwards across there uh, and uh, talked about peace. And you think, well, what was it? Uh, a month and a half, two months ago, we were thinking, oh, is it safe to get a bed? You know, is there going to be some kind of nuclear thing kicking off? Yeah. Lots of very angry rhetoric between Moon and uh, between Kim and Trump, mm. uh, and it all looked grim. And amazing how fast the world can change. Just incredible. Yeah. Just amazing. I, I think the big question is, you know, whether North Korea is serious, but all, all the indications are they are serious. Mm. Uh, and I was very interested to hear what the uh, Koreans in Seoul were saying, because they live with this. You know, this is not theoretical for them. Oh, yeah. They, they, they grow up with this and that, that big threat in, 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 in the north. So it was a very exciting time mm. to be there. And, and I was working with some uh, FameLab people. It's a, a competition that I get involved with uh, every year um and uh, i do uh, a lot of the training for it mm-hmm. and um any anybody's a regular listener to this program will know we we occasionally mention it um and um basically the challenge is for early uh, the early career scientists who enter you, they they go into a um ultimately they'll go into a theater uh, event somewhere where they go and stand on the stage a bit like a stand up comedian and for three minutes, they have to wow an audience with a talk about science. And uh, it's quite a yeah. hard, tough thing to do. So but which part of that are you doing at the moment? Are you doing the workshops to prepare so, people for... Uh, well, what happens is that um, each country holds its own heats for this. So people apply. Okay. Um, in some places, they send in videos, but in a lot of places, they have heats. I, I think in Egypt, they have close, near, just under a 1,000 people. 
uh, apply, which is a nightmare for them because they have to. It's a nice nightmare, but they have to audition all these people. Yeah. Um, and a, a bit like Britain's Got Talent, you know, it's mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, but in most places, it's nothing. It's nothing uh, like that. You know, you may have a hundred people apply, or, or, or slightly less. But it, whatever, it gets whittled down to ten. Mm-hmm. And when they've got their 10, then I or one of my colleagues will go over and we'll run a two-day workshop. And uh, the idea is to take people who are already good at this because they've got through so far in the competition Mm -hmm. and give them uh, more training in public communication skills. So we teach them how to be interviewed on the radio or the television. Um, that makes me, a, I think, a poacher as well as a gamekeeper. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but more importantly, we, we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, when you're on your feet in front of a live audience, people who are really good at that, what is it that they do Yeah. Uh, that makes it work? And, of course, um, as you and I know, you know, working on this show, communicating science is something that we think is not just fun, but really not just something we're interested in, but something that's incredibly important because... You know, it affects how we are in the world. It, it affects how we decide as a population to spend our money. Um, it, it affects our understanding of the technology that's available to us. And so there are really, really good reasons for doing the competition. And it's fantastic fun for me. It's the most fun thing I do next to being on this show. I was going to say <laughs> BCFM all the way. And we should just say a big shout out to uh, Andrew who would normally uh, be with us but he can't be with us uh, this week so he says hi as well and we say hi back to him and uh, wish him well. And uh, we better do some science news. I suppose so. We should. So um, the first story that we've got up today is a bit, a bit of a strange one um, but it does come up um, perennially, um, which is kind of approximately the right word, which is that there are some toxic caterpillars roaming around London causing people (laughs) grim uh, things like... There's a gardener reporting that he was in contact with said caterpillar, which we'll talk about in just a second. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, She suffered from severe symptoms, um, rashes, uh, vomiting... Um, and uh, the left side of her face became covered in a sore, irritating rash. Her eyes became sore and weepy. So what are these grim things? They're called, I think, oak processionary moth larvae. Yeah, so oak processionary moth caterpillars. Uh, Why do you think they're called processionary? I think it's because they like... Not just to only to walk about, but walk about with their friends in a long they line. They do. They walk around nose to tail in long lines, sometimes a few <laughs> caterpillars wide and sometimes in arrowhead formation. So there'll be like a few lines all with one leader and they'll follow him to new food and things like that. Um, but they're covered... Um, well, first of all, we'll establish where they are. They're in um, sort of southeast uh, England, in Greater London, um, and the biggest infections seem to be in Kingston upon Thames, across to uh, Brent, mm-hmm. and they they do threaten several species of oaks. What they can do is they can def- defoliate whole trees, right? Uh, which that, makes that them means they eat their leaves. Yeah, yeah. sorry, uh, eat no, all no, leaves. no. It's a good word. I was just translating <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just leaves those trees more vulnerable to stress and drought and things like that because they've just been had all their leaves stripped away. Um, now the the caterpillar themselves are covered in approximately up to. T- 
62,000 hairs per caterpillar uh, wow. that they can eject. And if they are, they can even stay active, as it were, on the ground for up to five years. So these are the hairs. So if the hairs fall off the cat, which presumably they do, yeah. and you pick them up, or you, you get can them still on your get skin, irritation in your eyes. Yeah. Um, they'll, like... Irritate the back of your throat, in your nose, so, get rashes. I mean, we have to say, uh, first up, these really do not make good pets. No, I wouldn't have them. No. <laughs> Myself. <laughs> um, they're I, thought to have been imported, actually, from the EU uh, on, um, on trees that were brought for a landscape project. That will make some people very happy to hear yes. that. Yes. Uh, um, the, the evil caterpillars come from the evil EU, so appara- allegedly so. Allegedly. Yes. And there's been an established population in the area for about... Uh, since about 2006. Um, but they don't live on fences or walls. So yeah. if you see caterpillars on, on fences or walls, it won't be... Almost certainly not them. Caterpillars, no. no. They'll mostly be on oak trees and they'll preferentially eat oak leaves and they'll only go onto other trees if there's no oaks around. It's funny you say this about walls because um, uh, Becky and I found uh, outside our house... Mm-hmm. Um, a whole collection of, of these things. And they, they look very like the picture oh, really? I've got up in front of me, yeah. But, it, but, but um, as you say, they're, they're not supposed to be found on walls. So no. it probably wasn't them and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't want people starting to I'd Probably, panic. if I saw a hairy caterpillar at all, I'd probably avoid touching it. Yeah. Because hairs on caterpillars are generally there to discourage you from yeah. touching them or eating them if you're an animal. And I guess, disca- I guess, yeah, discouraging birds from, from, from Yeah, they're them. generally an irritant. That's generally why they're there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be... There's, there's just thousands of them. There's a huge infection in, in Greater London at the moment that's causing some problems. And they are trying to treat them. Um, and treatment involves spraying chemicals onto the trees to try yeah. and kill the uh, caterpillars. Yeah. But after about... Um, sort of May, June time uh, around that, that border they'll tr- probably stop spraying and any that are survived then will continue to become moths and um, the reason they stop at that point is because most of the caterpillars will be too large to actually be affected at all by the um, pr- preferred pesticide there well, I have, to, I have to say that the, this caterpillar does get my uh, present award for the most exotically named animal yeah. an oak processionary moth I just like the, the little processions that the go on together. Thing, yeah, um, but uh, of course there may, there may be uh, caterpillars with uh, even better names than that. So we, we'd we'd love to know what they, <laughs> what they are. Do contact us and tell us. Um, but uh, oak processionary moth does sound, it sounds very grand, very important. Mm. The sort of thing that would open Parliament. Yeah. If it was if Quite there was legal. a moth Parliament. <laughs> um, and the moths themselves, uh, I've got no pictures. Of those, but the moths themselves only live for what a few days. Um, could be up to a couple of weeks. Um, right. Let's have a look here. The moths themselves look like a little. Judging by my quick my quick Google search, yeah. look like uh, small pieces of like uh, bark. They look like a little chip ah. of bark, which is quite interesting. You could have a look at that. In. Yeah, I really like the way moths look. Sometimes they're really cool, and sometimes they. Um, yes, I mean a lot of moths mimic are, other things to a lot blend of moths in. Moths are very beautiful, aren't they? Mm. You know, people people think, oh no, moths are horrible things that scare some people because they flutter around in the um, in your lamps. And, yeah, uh, some people do have fears of them. Uh, yeah, um, but, but but actually, some of them can be very very beautiful. 
They can. Yeah. Um, I remember when we were younger, my dad used to put like a, a lamp out on a chair and drape a huge, uh, like a blanket over them or like a, a piece of linen. Um, I want to say bed sheet. That's the word. Um, and you leave the lamp on and wait till night falls. Yeah. And then you can go out and look at all the different moth and insect species that have been attracted to the light. Oh, wow. The lamp, and they'll sit on the on the on the sheet yeah. so that you can see them they're not all flapping around on the yeah. light itself it's really yeah. cool really interesting thing to do and one of the great things of course we can do these days with people with mobile phones you can photograph the moths you don't have to yeah do anything else you can leave you can don't leave have to them. Hurt them you don't have to hurt them you can leave leave them alone mm. and uh, and then go and find out what they are yeah um so you're listening to love and science so we like to talk about science in the news and science behind the news and uh, there's been a uh, report which has uh, come out um this is in the journal uh, a journal called science advances that uh, international researchers uh, are saying that great ape populations require more attention than they uh, currently uh, receive um, it's uh, I think one of the most heartbreaking things about anybody interested in conservation is seeing what happens to uh, particularly to big animals I mean it's tragic that any any population of animals is is, is under threat and of course um, uh, wherever that happens it's cause for concern but there's something so tragic when you hear um, of threats to large animals you know for, for something like poaching mm. and um, you know people um, uh, animals losing uh, dying because their habitats are, are just not being uh, cared for but it's a very complicated situation I think yeah uh, there's a lot of factors that do come into population decline but you're right that that those two are really large um, influences. This this study that's recently come out is uh, sitting on sort of decade long, uh, sorry, a decade's worth of, of research in yeah. the field, and they've established the three three main threats to um, Western lowland gorillas uh, populations and uh, the central chimpanzee populations, and they've just bulked them into three groups, which is guns, germs, and trees, and they are they're just keywords for guns, meaning um, they need to be protected against poaching, which yep. involves guns uh, most of the time. And germs, they are at risk from disease, which is um, affecting the population. So um, great apes, for example, gorillas and things like yeah. that, will, will get Ebola, which yeah. of course is a terrifying uh, disease mm. and spreads rapidly. Yeah, really quite devastating. Um, and then thirdly, like you said, it's the uh, trees, which is uh, protecting their habitat. Providing a high quality habitat is a really good way of like... Um, of protecting a species where it is living and also providing it with a, a, a richer, nutrient-rich uh, environment to live in. And they found that the good news that this study has found is that they, they, they predict there's about a third more gorillas um, than we previously yeah, thought. that is good news. Uh, which is, yeah, it's really great news. Um, but what they have found is that um, about 80% of that population is living outside of protected zones. Yeah. Um, meaning that they don't they don't receive the same protection yeah. um, as the ones inside. So only twenty, only a fifth of these gorilla populations are in an area where people are really taking care of them. Mm. Yeah, That's where they can receive the, the highest level of protection. Sorry, when yeah. I say fifth, I don't mean that. Yes, I do. You do. A fifth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Sorry. Yeah. Did I look a bit quizzical? Yeah, you did. My maths. Oh, right? my, my maths is terrible, so I was trying to work out <laughs> how that worked. No, that's right. Uh, and uh, all the rest of them, 
uh, are, are much more vulnerable than that. Um, it's very interesting. I was talking to somebody just uh, um, last week, I think, mm-hmm. who was working with uh, guerrilla conservation. And, and uh, she was saying, you know, if we, if we have a simple approach where we go, right, poachers, bad, evil people, mm. um, and gorillas, you know, lovely animals that we need to save, um, that that is a, a, a ridiculously simplistic thing. I mean, yeah. no, we, I mean, they are lovely animals that we need to save. There's no argument about that, and important animals. Um, but um, she said, you know, there are people in desperate poverty um, who just who are sometimes induced or forced in, by gangs into poaching. So, so the gangs don't take the risks. They send people who they're effectively threatening yeah. uh, to go and do these things. So it's an awful, it's an awfully complicated business. Um, uh, being able to change uh, cultures where this happens, criminal cultures mm-hmm. where where this happens. Um, uh, it's not just straightforward at all. Um, disease, I know almost nothing about the kinds of diseases that they're uh, they're vulnerable to. But I'm shocked to hear that Ebola is one of them because that's uh, horrific. Yeah. And and uh, then of course we're back to economics with with the trees. You know, people chop trees down because they they sell them or they need them. Yeah, need the and, space even. Yeah, and we're back we're back to economics. Mm-hmm. And uh, poverty and, and so on. So all of these things go hand in hand. They do. Um, it's it's really it's a really difficult, like you said, really complex um, whole like whole situation that doesn't just involve protecting gorillas. It also involves communities that that live around like the edges of the the forest or the jungle. Sorry, uh, where they're living, these western lowland gorillas or the the central chimps. It's it's lots of relationships that need to be managed between people who need the forest for, like you said, economic reasons, and the gorillas that need them for living. Um, and it's not something that can be solved very quickly. But it's important to get this kind of data and research so that we can see what key areas are, be, are affecting their survival. Like what are the three main things we can do that will have the biggest impact on their survival and their like thriving in the in the natural environment um, rather than trying to address everything all at once that's not working you can choose your best bets or the ones that are going to have the most impact to really make sure your time is spent well yeah 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 so it's a hopeful report in in in, in some ways but a huge amount of, of work to do yeah well look um uh, we we are going to uh, carry on looking at science in the news and behind the news um, you're listening to bcfm 93.2 fm bcfm radio.com so you can listen to us um, online uh, you can also uh, go to uh, the website uh, look at the uh, schedule and uh, find bcfm uh, find uh, love and science or uh, you can uh, listen to uh, any of our bcfm uh, programs because uh, we uh, catalog them and save them so that you can uh, listen to them uh, as much as you want so don't forget to do that um and uh we uh, hannah and i were to oh, i think we've we've got so just to let you know there are beeps and things <laughs> going off uh because 
there seems to be uh, uh, some I think there was a fire, uh, alarm. fire alarm going off and uh, we, we, stopped. we were just deciding while the music was playing whether we needed to leave the building or not. Uh, it's not that we're recklessly irresponsible, but we, uh, uh, we did go and ask if that meant that we had and to leave. And also the show must go on. And the show, <laughs> the show must go on. Yeah, I think, Hannah, you really probably needed to stay here uh, and play. <laughs> <laughs> carry on Works uh, and I'll out. go and I'll go and check yeah. that everything's yeah, all right outside sure. um one so thing I did want to say was do you do you know what the gorilla's latin name is um the western lowland gorilla's name what do they call them it's called gorilla 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 <laughs> it's all it's just all three so gorilla gorilla is its genus and its species like normal and the western lowland gorilla is a, as like a subspecies it's just gorilla again oh right yeah so if it met another uh, another animal, it might say, yes, I'm Gorilla Gorilla. That would be its yeah. formal introduction. Yeah. Yes. It's like I, a full like, name. Yes. I, I think I heard, I think a rat is called Ratters Ratters, probably a similar kind of thing. That's good. That's so, so, so can you, because I, I mean, I know you're a biologist. Can you, you remember then, so you start off, an animal belongs to, it belongs to a kingdom. So it's either an animal or a plant. Yes. So, so we say, right, it's an animal. Yeah. And then, and then after that... It's okay. I think it's kingdom. Is it kingdom phylum? Right. Oh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. Hang on. So when you said, so, but you said you, just now you were saying right, gorilla, 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 and yeah. you, what does it refer to? Then? So the first gorilla. Um, so the first gorilla is its genus, right? Which okay. is like a broad group yeah. Um, yeah. of species that are quite similar. Right. So lots of species. Or evolved from very similar ancestor. Right. So lots of species are in a genus. Yes. Right. Okay. And then the second gorilla is its species, right. which is the kind of thing that it is of yeah. the genus. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and then the final one is the subspecies. Yeah. So it's still kind of uh, the Western Lowland gorilla is still just a, a gorilla, yeah. but it's a subspecies that is so it's usually defined by being slightly isolated from another species. Oh, Maybe right. they don't interbreed. So it's just, it is. Oh, right. It could okay. potentially be the same species, but it's like a subspecies because they don't really interact. Oh, and right. that's what that final gorilla is. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really interesting, uh, and it's that's called taxonomy, isn't it? When you when you classify different things, I've got a. Um, uh, something which always amuses me. Yeah. Um, and this is something described by the writer um, uh, Jorge Luis, Luis Borges. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, he, he wrote um, uh, all about this. It, it was called, it's a kind of Chinese ta uh, uh, taxonomy that mm -hmm. um, he quotes from the Celestial Emporium of Benevolent Knowledge. Ooh. And they divided all animals into 14 categories. Now, before I tell you what this is, I think, actually, although it might sound like a really dry, boring mm. subject, taxonomy, how you divide and classify things is yeah. really interesting. So if you said, how would I, all right, then, if I was to classify my, my, uh, my records, or might say my music, but people yeah. would, would now, um, or if I was to classify the ornaments in my house, mm -hmm. Or the food in my cupboard, you know, how would I go about it? It's quite, it's quite interesting. It is a really difficult thing. I, and and the, but this is completely bizarre. Okay. And I, I like this. Um, the uh, the fourteen categories of animals are in the Chinese Encyclopedia of the Celestial Emporium of Benevolent Knowledge. Mm -hmm. Those that belong to the emperor, okay. embalmed <laughs> ones, those that are trained, suckling pigs. Mermaids or sirens, <laughs> fabulous ones, 
is this a fabulous animal? You know, uh, stra- <laughs> stray dogs have a category okay. all of their own. Those that are included in this classification. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I guess that's so. very interesting. Those that tremble as if they were mad. Right. Innumerable ones, presumably that means there's like insects lots, and lots, things. Yeah, yeah, insects. Those drawn with a very fine camel hairbrush. What? Um, <laughs> those that have just broken a flower vase. And those that at a distance resemble flies. I feel like there might be some like literal <laughs> translation that hasn't quite carried across the meaning, the, like, the true quite, meaning there. Quite possibly. The but fabulous that's, ones. That's a I seriously that. bonkers uh, classification system, isn't it? That's so good. <laughs> All right. Well, um, last week uh, we heard from uh, Louise uh, Vennels. Uh, we we pl- played a package from her. And this week um, she's... Uh, also uh, made a package for us, which is all about di- diabetes. Uh, Louise uh, works with the University of Exeter, and um, she uh, is interested in how uh, uh, di- diabetes is often mis diagnosed so you can have type 1 or type 2 diabetes we hear actually there may be several kinds of uh, diabetes and it's incredibly important to get the right diagnosis anyway louise went to investigate right how are you how have things been yeah not too bad thank you excellent and how have things been with the diabetes an estimated four million people in the uk are living with diabetes It encompasses a range of conditions that affect the body's ability to produce or respond to insulin, a hormone that helps our cells absorb blood sugar. Yet within that term, there are a range of subtypes, each with their own complexities. New research at the University of Exeter is helping people get the right diagnosis in diabetes. Where that goes wrong, it can have a severe impact on lives. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, there were certain things that I knew if I was going to eat them, it would make me ill. Helen Philbin, a dental nurse from Torquay, was wrongly told she had type 2 diabetes shortly after she turned 40. Everyone kept telling me, well, this is really unusual, but no-one even considered the possibility that it might be type 1 and not type 2. So I'm going to take your height now, if that's all right. Most people with diabetes have type 2, which is often linked to obesity. It means that insulin produced by the body doesn't work as it should. They are given diet and lifestyle advice and treated with tablets. Type 1 is rarer. It occurs when the body's immune system destroys the cells that make insulin. People with the condition need insulin injections for the rest of their lives. Helen, a mother of two young children, was slim and active. She repeatedly queried her diagnosis, but was told the fact that it occurred in adulthood must mean it was type 1, rather than type 2. Meanwhile, her condition worsened. I went on to lose more weight and I had regular episodes of vomiting, feeling quite lethargic, yeah, just generally not well at all. Recent research has dispelled beliefs that type 1 is mostly diagnosed in childhood, concluding that more than 40% of cases occur after the age of 30. Emerging knowledge like this makes diagnosis increasingly complex, but Dr Angus Jones of the University of Exeter Medical School says getting it right is key to improving people's health. It's hugely important because the treatment is is completely different. So if the diagnosis is wrong, the effect that will have depends on the, the type of diabetes someone has. 
If someone has type 1 diabetes but is thought to have type 2 diabetes, as we've seen with Helen's case, what will happen is they'll, they'll be given tablets, but those tablets won't work properly. And what often happens during that time, they're at increased risk of complications because of high glucose, they may have a lot of weight loss, um, and they may feel less well than normal. The, the other way around, when someone has type 2 diabetes but is misdiagnosed to 1 diabetes, what that means is that patient will get given insulin treatment from diagnosis, and because it's very rare for us to really review someone's diagnosis, those patients will get that insulin for the rest of their life. And interestingly, when we look at this, we really see a suggestion of, of, of half the people treated as type 1 diabetes in later life, after about age 30, really clearly have type 2 diabetes. Are you OK to pop your shoes off? Yeah. Now, Dr Jones has created a calculator that takes into account all of a person's symptoms and clinical features in combination, along with the latest evidence. It can be used in clinic to diagnose diabetes more accurately than any doctor can. Well, I'm hoping eventually this will be international. And what we want is a very simple tool that's available on doctors' phones or through a website or even just integrated into computer systems people have in hospitals or at GP practices that will give people the most accurate diagnosis of whether a patient who's just been diagnosed with diabetes has type 1 or type 2 and needs early insulin therapy. And what we hope that will do is reduce the amount of misclassification and help people get the right treatment much quicker so we see less problems like in Helen's case where perhaps the treatment isn't ideal um, initially. Now I'm just going to measure your weight as well. Dr Jones is now recruiting people who have recently been diagnosed with diabetes to take part in the Start Right trial. It will establish whether the calculator is giving the right diagnosis by following up with participants. A year after she was first diagnosed, Helen Philbin was invited to take part in the trial. In doing so, she finally got the correct diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. Helen saw improvements as soon as she switched to insulin injections. Almost instantly, blood sugar was back to normal. The weight started coming back on and I just started to look and feel, obviously, a lot better, a lot more energy, just sleeping better. I haven't had vomiting since. It was just a relief because I actually didn't mind whether I was type 1 or type 2. I just wanted the right treatment for whichever one it was. If you're aged 18 or over and you've been diagnosed with diabetes in the last 18 months, you can take part in the Start Right trial. Contact the Exeter Clinical Research Facility on 01392 408 182 to find out more. And that was uh, Louise Fennels uh, from uh, the University of Exeter. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Indeed you are, and uh, uh, you're joined... Oh, we are... Uh, what am I trying to say? I actually don't I'm know. just. I was, I was just going to say it's me, Malcolm Love, and it's you. Hey, yes, uh, it Hannah is. Beswick, and uh, I'm just just wrapping my tongue around my mouth like some fool. And it's I'll, okay, uh, you got there in the end, which I is know, the most important I know. thing. I don't, don't beat myself up. Exactly. I was going to say, I, I was telling you very, very early on in the program about mm-hmm. Korea uh, and being being in Korea. And um, one of the things I, I, I meant to say was that um, I met a, a man, a Korean man, that I'd met before uh, who'd taken part in FameLab. And they'd said to me, oh, we've got this chap coming. I, uh, and I didn't recognise the way they pronounced the name. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't realise that I knew him. And uh, said, oh, he'd really like to meet you. He's coming to talk to the fame lovers yeah. and everything. And uh, I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, yes, he, he, um, he won fame lab, you know, a while ago. And I said, oh, oh right, OK. And uh, he now has the second most watched program on Korean television. That's amazing. And it's a science program. 
That's incredible. So everybody knows him. He's really famous in Korea. So when I met him, I thought, ah, you. You know, I know, who, I know you. I know who you are. And so we had a really good chat and caught up. And he's gone. He's back in Korea. Mm. And he's managed, on, on the back of doing Fame Lab, now, he's now uh, the second... Made a great uh, success th- Yeah, the, the, the second most well-known... Uh, TV programme in Korea. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. So, big things do, do, do happen. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're, we're back to some science news, and um, uh, this story is space agencies deliver rocks from Mars to Earth. Now, without Andrew being here, we're not saying we can't cope. Yeah. But he just copes so much better. <laughs> he than, does cope than, very than, well than, with the, the space the, stories. The, than we do. So uh, this, is, this is the story, essentially, that um, there's been a meeting in Berlin uh, where people from ESA, that's the European Space Agency, and NASA, of course, um, have uh, got together and they've made a commitment uh, to saying, right, we're going to send a mission to Mars that's going to bring rocks back yeah. to the Earth. And um, I don't know if you've had a look at this story, but, I mean, um, did you catch why they think it's important to do that? Um, That I get the idea that it's to understand um, a bit more about why the planet is the way it is, whether or not it supported life at any point and what kind. Yeah, I I mean, I just think, because the Curiosity rover, uh, which has been wandering around... um, Doing its best, best, photographing things and analysing things, Mm -hmm. it can only do so much because it's a a robot. You can't take that much equipment with you as a little robot. No, whereas we've got huge laboratories and uh, all kinds of analytical techniques available that you couldn't necessarily pack into a spaceship. Mm. Um, And um, uh, so if we get get these rocks back, the the idea is that it will tell us quite a lot about what's been going on on the Martian surface, how life may have evolved or or not. Um, uh, uh, You know, we we, we just don't know. I mean, I should just say uh, up front, we have no idea yet because we have no evidence of whether... Uh, there's been life on Mars ever, mm-hmm. um, but we don't really have techniques. And Curiosity is not actually looking for life. It's not doing that. Okay. It's actually charting the the surface and the surface features right. of okay. Mars, geological features. Um, so um, how are they going to do it? It would be amazing. Well, uh, apparently. According to uh, the stories that uh, I've been looking at, they're going to uh, essentially um, blast the uh, material, um, it, well, force it into uh, a container mm-hmm. and fire it back to Earth. Just on a, like on, a little pod-containing a little, rock. Little pod-containing rocks, yeah. Wow. Um, but yep. then that begs a really interesting question, which you, you know, don't think necessarily... Mm. Um, is an issue, which is that um, we have to be careful not to contaminate the surface of Mars mm-hmm. because, you know, we could find ourselves in a couple of years' time going, wow, look what's here. And actually, it's we because put we it put it there. So that's nothing, you know, we've learned yeah. nothing significant. Uh, scarily, what would happen if there were, uh, mic- if there were microbes mm. that then could damage us? Yeah. Uh, when they when they come back here, so uh, the the scientists at NASA and the ESA and other people involved say, well, we're you know we're really good at this kind of thing. We're very very good at treating biological hazards. They are very good at science. In uh, general. Very good at <laughs> science and and uh, you know using maybe nuclear um, 
techniques in order to uh, kill off bugs or protect us from bugs okay. and so on. So um, they, they've got all that in hand. But it's a very exciting uh, development. Yeah. Um, That's uh, amazing. So, so they'll yeah. get bits of rock back to Earth. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And uh, talking about coming back to Earth, we've uh, got John with us. Hi, John Ford. Hello. Um, I'm going to have to put you onto a microphone there. Have I got you on the right one? Let's see. Ah. How about that? Yeah, that sounds really good. Is that good? Yeah, very good. Excellent. Nice talking to you. How are you? I'm all right, thank you, yeah. Good, good. You had a good week? You're looking well. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, you're looking very well. Wow. Be- since you've become a grandfather. Ah, <laughs> you noticed. Congratulations. Thank you very first much. First time, is this the first one? Or? No, it's oh, my uh, third one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nothing. I've stopped saying to them, you know, don't tell people I'm your grandfather, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And <laughs> <laughs> I've accepted I am a grander. No, of I course. love it. Yeah, no, yeah, I yeah. love it. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, little Willow arrived uh, just under two weeks well, ago. Congratulations, oh, and I hope Mum yeah. and Willow are doing well. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so in, in the programme this week, you know, we're without Andrew, so... Yeah. Yeah, he didn't yeah, yeah. bring uh, his corrective um, insights to our, our astronomy. Oh, dear. So, uh, you know, we could have... No, I was going to say we've talked all kinds of rubbish, but I know we haven't. I OK, I can give you some astronomy if you want. Yes, yeah, please. well... Well, because on this day it. in the year 1006, mm-hmm. Very good which year. is, uh, you know, a good, good number of years ago now, isn't it? Um, what was that? Uh, a thousand and uh, twelve years ago. Whoa. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Chinese and Arabic astronomers uh, noted a supernova, which was pretty uh, pretty good for that that time, I suppose, over a thousand years ago. Um, yeah. the, the speed of the still expanding shock wave was measured nearly a millennium later, so not uh, that long ago. Uh, yes. So the supernova happened a thousand years ago. Yeah. And it was still being measured a thousand years it's later. Incredible. This it's would have been, the, isn't it? This would have been the gravity waves thing that yeah. people have been have been yeah. talking Apparently about. Apparently, it's history's brightest new star ever recorded. Wow. Uh, first seen brighter than the planet Venus. Oh. Wow. wow. Yeah, I yeah. mean, over a thousand years ago. I mean, what yeah. gear would they have had to have seen that? You just wonder, well, you? The, well, actually, uh, you wouldn't need a lot of gear to see a supernova. No. Because not, yeah. it's incredibly bright. Yeah. I mean, we've, there, there is one, but some people would know that the, 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 there's a star which we call uh, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse, as some people mm-hmm. call it. Um, yeah. And... Um, that is set to go supernova, right? Okay. Which could be in a thousand years, or it could be next week. Yeah. But we know it's primed to go, and when it goes, it'll be as bright as the moon. Oh right, wow. okay. So you know, that's just to give an idea of what, wow. what that would be. Like. And when, when's this meant to happen? Oh, it could yeah, happen next week. <laughs> or seriously, or it could happen next week, or, 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 or it could be yeah. a thousand years. Because astronomical in time mm. is is obviously yeah, of course. So much how, yeah. how long? Just a quick question: How long does it last? Like, if it's going to be as bright as the moon, uh, like, uh, is it just you have to be looking at it to notice it? Or I I think maybe a month or so. Really? Okay, yeah. good time to... Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we've we just got to hope it happens in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah. it would be, it'd be amazing if it would be any danger to us, then. No, no. no. It'd just look good. It'd look good, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's far too far away to hurt us, but yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Do you want another one? Yeah. yeah. Um, on it. this day in 1894... This is interesting. I should be closer to home. Um, 
An Antarctic iceberg fragment was sighted at a latitude of 26.5 degrees south, which is about where Rio de Janeiro is in oh, Brazil. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it remains to this day the nearest to the equator that an iceberg yeah. has been seen um, this day in 1894. Now, you would have thought with all the global warming and bits falling off yeah. of Antarctica and the yeah. Arctic that, you, you know, you'd get icebergs all over the shop, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. Um, but you this would was in 1894, which tells me that global warming, well, I mean, has it been happening for many years or is it a bit of a myth? <laughs> don't you come onto our show and do that? Just say you saying. have to leave now. Yeah, not having that. <laughs> well, uh, but uh, well, of course, uh, there's always been um, uh, climate change yeah, uh, course, for all yeah. for all kinds of reasons, and we know, you know, that's why. Well, we the talk, ice age. We, exactly. Yeah. We talk. We talk about yeah. the ice age and all yeah, of that, yeah, all yeah. of that kind of thing. But um, uh, you know, uh, what we currently call climate change is. Yeah. Uh, Happening, uh, at an it's happening at an unprecedented rate. rate yeah. Yes. Anyway, John, it's great to have you on the show, and uh, don't forget to stay tuned for John's show because he's getting Bristol home uh, after this, and uh, we'll have some news. Then it's John's show. It's been a pleasure to uh, have your company. Join Hannah and me, and hopefully Andrew next week for another edition of Love and Science. Have a great evening. Mm-hmm.